0: 23 minutes. I know you're thinking, okay, what's happening in 23 minutes? 23 minutes is the amount of time it takes you to refocus after interruption. So they've researched this. I don't know why we trust people who research things like this, but the research is clear that if you're working and you're interrupted by something, it takes 23 minutes on average to get back to where you were before the interruption. And so in business productivity world or efficiency world, we want to get rid of as many interruptions in our, in our workflow as possible so that we can stay on task, stay focused, stay diligent. In our own lives, too, we don't like to be interrupted. When we're in the middle of a conversation, the last thing we want is somebody to pipe up or cut off our argument or step on our conversational toes. We want to be able to talk freely and, not, and be able to finish our thoughts effectively, It was probably before I was born, but the story in my family goes something like this. My mom is driving to the store. She stops in the parking lot and gathers, the the kids are starting to get gathered. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. My next brother up was small enough to be in a car seat, but big enough to kind of reach around the car, and somebody comes up to talk to my mom, and as she's having this conversation through the window, my brother begins to call out, Mom... Nick, we don't interrupt while mom's talking. Mom. Nicky, I'm telling you, we don't interrupt while mommy's talking. Mom. She finally turns around, and little did she know, his little fingers were stuck in the window because she had rolled the window up, you know. Uh, my brother next up is the big guy. He's, uh, he's my size and about... 90 pounds heavier than me. He's a football player size, so he was apparently a mighty man when he was little. But his little fingers were stuck, and he didn't want to interrupt his mom, but he tried to. But at a young age, we're, we're taught, do not interrupt, do not get in the way. When I'm doing something, let me do what I'm doing. What we find in Mark chapter 5 is Jesus is interrupted on three different occasions. And just from a surface-level uh, behavior modeling Position, I want to be just like Jesus in the way that he responds to interruptions because he does not stop the interruptions and say, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm on I'm on to bigger and pressing things. In each situation he pauses, he collects himself, he responds by giving attention, and in all three situations he provides healing. Pretty remarkable. Now, as we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, I mentioned last week that we are moving fairly quickly through the Gospel, hoping to hit the resurrection passages around the time of Easter. So, how, by the way, how many of you did your homework this week? Look at you. How, does that mean you read the, the Mark chapter 5, or did you read the entire Gospel? How many read you, the entire Gospel? Oh, overachievers. I love it. Yes. So hopefully you weren't interrupted in that reading. But my challenge was... Every week, listen to or read the entire Gospel of Mark between now and Easter. It would be a good challenge for all of you. And also, it just allows the Word to kind of set in your brain. So as we go chapter by chapter, passage by passage, uh, God's Word is working in and through us. uh, And God's Spirit is opening our eyes to see what God has for us. That's the goal in this, right? So last week, we talked about different ways we react to God's Word to us. Sometimes we react by being hardened to Him. Sometimes we react by, re- by overreacting quickly. Sometimes we react excitedly, but we get strangled out because we don't really think about the ramifications of what He's telling us. And sometimes we respond with the right heart, and God produces in us great fruit. And the fruit is not so that we can enjoy it. The fruit in our lives is so that God can be honored and glorified. And that's the way we ought to live our lives as Christians, constantly responding with openness, with responsiveness to the leading of the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 and three interruptions. And so I entitled this message, Interruptions Redeemed, because Jesus is interrupted in each situation. He doesn't respond like you and I would with frustration. He responds rather by stepping in and bringing healing and bringing restoration, bringing redemption. And so we want to learn from his example and uh, so let's pr- we're going to pray, and then we're going to read the entire section, just for you who didn't do your homework at home. I want you to catch up. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning eager to hear from you. I thank you, Lord, that we can gather in peace, knowing that uh, we don't need to be afraid in these moments. We can open your word. It's accessible to us. We can read it. We know, God, that it is the living and abiding Word of God. We know that it's like fire that burns our hearts and and brings impurities out. It's, It's like a hammer that smashes the rock of our hardened hearts at times. God, we know that it is alive to us and your Spirit is in us to make known the things that you've given to us freely, and we want to know those things today. We don't want to come with hardened hearts. We want to come with responsive hearts to see what it is that you have for us in this chapter, in this passage. I pray, God, that you would challenge each of us with regards to the way that we see Jesus. And I pray, Father, that it would change not just the way we see him, but the way that we live out after him. I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. And these things we pray in his precious name. Amen. So pick up with me. We're actually going to begin at the end of chapter four and we'll read through the end of chapter five. A little bit of a long text, but bear with me. Because They kind of string together in fairly quick form. So we want to see the whole thing before we look at the details. Starting in verse 35 of of Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in their boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus, stepped, had, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs, let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbered about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea." And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him. But said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then Then came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. So that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a just discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said if I just even touch his garments I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, "'Who touched my garments?' And his disciples said to him, "'You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, "'Who touched me?' And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace.'" And be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking there came from the ruler's house some who said your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, "Do not fear, only believe." And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. And they came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered he said to them, "Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little child or little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Long passage, yes but how often do you read long passages? And so I have a question for you. As you're listening to the Bible read, what are you doing? Are you thinking? Are you trying to figure out what's going on with the story? Are you mentally putting yourself in the place of the characters? Are you trying to uh, surround yourself with the context? Are you trying to fight yourself towards focusing on the message? Are you looking at Jesus? Are you looking at the demoniac? Are you looking at the, the desperate dad? Are you looking at the woman? Are you looking at the disciples and wondering why they are still questioning who Jesus is? Are you wondering what it must have been like to try to row across the the lake in the middle of a storm? Where's your brain going? I want us to be thinking about what we're thinking about while we're reading, because it's important. It's important for us to get into the text. And passages like this are hard to study, but they're also hard to teach because they sound a lot like a story. And when we think of a story, usually the application is very fuzzy, You know, yeah, we liked the movie, we didn't like the movie. Yeah, we liked the novel, we didn't like the novel. But finding the application, we haven't really done that since we were in grade school or maybe high school literature class. But now that we're big people and we're living, we need to retrain our brains to read and think critically and understand and really get inside the the text and context of what we're reading. So I want us to kind of think about these interruptions this morning and hopefully gain some insight into how we ought to live Because we ought to live like Jesus. But I also don't want us to be distracted into thinking that Jesus only came here to be a good example of how to live. Certainly, Jesus is a good example of how to live. But he only could live well because he was righteous. And you can only live well if you are righteous like he is. And the only way that you and I can be righteous like he is, is if we die to ourselves and we take on the righteousness that he freely gives us through himself. And so we understand who Jesus is, we trust in who Jesus is, we follow Jesus. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of the living God. And to quote the demons, he is the Son of the Most High God. And we trust in him, and we learn from him, and we follow him. So let's look at these three interruptions. First, we're going to look at the demonized man. The day before, most likely, Jesus had spent an entire day teaching. He was tired. And it says that evening time, they got in the boats and they went across the lake. Now, I did some research. I'm showing you the extent of my nautical information right now. It took about four to six hours, most likely, to row or sail across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's really more of a lake, but across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus finds himself, because it's night and because he had been ministering hard the whole day, he is asleep in the stern. And here's my knowledge. The stern is in the back, right? He's in the back of the boat and he's sleeping and the storm is wailing and no doubt the the disciples are cursing because they're scared to death. They literally think they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. And they wake him. And I love the question. Do you not care about us? We are about to die here, and you're sleeping. And he stands up, and he just rebukes the wind, and it stops. And they arrive at the other side of the lake, and as soon as they get out of the boat, they're interrupted by this demonized man who, interestingly enough, sees Jesus from a distance. And when he sees Jesus, he races to him, and we learn a little bit about this man just kind of in a parenthetical thought. We realize that this man, or we learn that this man is unclean. Not only is he filled with unclean spirits, but he is also living among the tombs. If you know anything about Old Testament law, if you're around the dead, if you touch the dead, if you're near the dead, you are unclean. He is unclean. He is unclothed. He is uncontrollable. He is, he is it's impossible to have an intelligent conversation with him. And no matter how many times he had been bound, no matter how many times they'd use chains to, to shackle him in place, he broke them with great strength and lived running amok, cutting himself with stones. Now, kind of pause for a second. What's your kind of emotional reaction to this man? If you get out of the boat with Jesus, and this man comes running at you, naked and bleeding, what's your reaction? Honey, get the kids. Let's back up. Let's, let's confine this fellow. Let's, let's, let's all get him and put him away. Let's get him as far from us as possible. Because we don't want to touch him, we don't want to talk to him, we don't want to see him. We don't even want to be anywhere associated with a fellow. But what does Jesus do? Jesus engages with him. Mark tells us that Jesus is saying to the man, demons come out of him. And the demons immediately respond to Jesus and say, do not what? Do not torment us and do not send us away. We do not want to be sent out of the country. We like it here. But they immediately recognize him as Jesus, son of the most high God. It's interesting. Back in chapter 3, the demons were saying the same thing. This is Jesus, the son of God. Remember, Jesus, the son of God, is a major theme of the gospel of Mark. The very opening lines, it says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. At the very end of the book, the centurion says, surely this was Jesus the Son of God. And so the whole book is about you and I realizing that Jesus is not just a good man that responds well to interruptions. Jesus is a man who is the Son of God and should be believed in. He should be trusted. He should be followed. He should be revered. And Jesus, in interacting with these demons, finds this man running at him, falling at his feet, and begging him. I don't know if you heard it as I was reading through the chapter, how many times the word beg or begged is used. In fact, all three people beg Jesus of something. But in this case, he ran, he fell, he begged, and he's begging them, do not torment us, send us away, not not out of the country, but into these pigs. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what would it have been like to have just gotten out of the boat? I'm still a little bit wet. I'm still a little bit flustered because Jesus was sleeping while I was dying. I finally get on land, and now this man comes running naked, bleeding at me. And Jesus says, I permit you demons to go into the swine, the pigs. And immediately, this man becomes calm, and those calm pigs become chaotic. And the herd of 2,000 of them roll down this hill into the ocean or into the sea, and they're drowned. Just think about what that moment would have been like. And in that moment, do you say, this man is unusual? Or do you say, this is the man I want to follow? The demonized man, now delivered, begs Jesus to go with him. As Jesus is getting ready to leave, he begs them, please let me go with you, please let me be a follower of you. And what I think is most interesting in this is Jesus says no. Isn't that interesting? This man wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says no. What does he say instead? He says, no, don't follow me. Go back to your land. Go back to your family. Go back to your friends. Tell them about the mercy of the Lord. And the section ends with this man goes back to his family, his friends, the Decapolis, which is a large area of 10 nations. He declares in all of them that Jesus had mercy on him and delivered him. In the middle of that, we see the the citizens from the towns coming out and seeing what's happening. They're hearing what's happening with these pigs. And they come out, and they see their livelihood now floating in the drink, and they're wondering what in the world just happened to him, and what's their response to Jesus? Not, wow, you are incredible. We need you around here. Get out of our land. We don't want to have anything to do with you. We don't like you. We don't want you. We reject you. Leave. And in a strange turn of events, Jesus says, okay. And even though they had just gotten out of the storm-tossed boat, Jesus says, let's get back in the boats and go back over. The demonized man becomes a delivered witness, and he gives testimony about the mercy of the Lord. As Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake now, he gets out of the boat, and he is met with a second interruption, which is the desperate father. I don't know if any of you have children who have had either serious injuries or serious illnesses, where you have been stuck in that situation where you are entirely and completely hopeless. You are completely desperate for help because you know that the sickness is way out of your control. This is where this man finds himself, and interestingly enough, he's not a disciple of Jesus. He's actually a ruler of the synagogue, which means he's, he's a pretty big deal among the Jewish people. And so for him to have heard of Jesus, and for now him seeing Jesus, for him to make the decision to go to Jesus, to run at him, to fall down, and to beg him for help, is a pretty big deal. And this man interrupts Jesus, says, no, Jesus is going somewhere else, and he bows down and he begs him, please come heal my daughter. If you just touch her, if you just come to my house, if you just touch her, she will be made well and will be healed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, okay. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was met with the two situations, a loving father in tears wanting to have his 12-year-old child healed or a naked man, bloody and going out absolute bonkers, I would respond to them totally differently, would you? But Jesus doesn't. He responds to the demoniac in the same way he he responds to Jairus, which is, okay, let's go. So he gets up and as this crowd is moving along, Jesus is interrupted a third time. We're not going to go there yet. We're going to come back to it. But as Jesus is dealing with this third interruption, what does the father have to do? The father has to wait. I'm like, is he thinking, Jesus, you're you're really being selfish? You were supposed to be helping me. I asked first. I begged you. You complied. You were coming. Come along. Let's keep walking. Let's keep walking. But Jesus is interrupted yet a third time, and after that's dealt with, before they can even start moving again, Mark says immediately, even though they were, he was still speaking, the people come from Jairus's house and say, it's too late, she's gone. It's too late, she's gone. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And as Jesus hears this, and he hears the crowd saying she's dead, Jesus says, don't fear. Interesting contrast. She's dead, don't fear, only believe. And Jesus continues. And when he gets to the house, he doesn't let everybody come in. He doesn't permit everybody to come in. He takes the mother, the father, Peter, James, and John, and they go inside the room. And as they're going inside the room, there are mourners there just wailing and weeping loudly. And he says, why are you weeping and wailing? She's not dead, she's sleeping. And what do they do? I love that. They laughed at him. We're going to come back to the laughter because it's an important piece in this puzzle. Jesus goes in, simply touches the girl, Talitha, Kumi, arise. And the girl wakes up. She stands up. The parenthetical thought, because she was 12 years old, of course she's going to stand up and walk around. And give her something to eat, Jesus says, and she goes on. But these interruptions are so interesting to me that Jesus responds the way he does and he just matter-of-factly continues through the process of what he's trying to accomplish. Let's go back to the, the third. We're not talking about a demonized man or a desperate father. We're talking about a debilitated woman. There was a time when our kids were younger that I would tell them a story of sorts at the end of the day and they would like me making up stories and I've made up some really, really crazy stories. But one story that I would tell periodically is this story in weird form because I think about what it must have been like for that lady that day. Now, it it could very well be that she just happened to be on the roadside when Jesus came. I have suspicions, though, that she had already heard about Jesus. She had already known about the healings that he had already performed. Maybe she even knew people that had been healed already from many, many sicknesses. I wonder if maybe that day when she heard that he was there, if she didn't, hours beforehand, get herself up. I don't know how, walk, how able to walk she was. I don't know how weak she was. We don't know any of those details. All we know is in her mind, she says, if I just get close enough to Jesus to touch him, in fact, I don't even need to touch him. I just need to touch the edge of his cloak. If I just, if I just get there and touch him, then I'll be healed. And remember, Jesus was not alone. He had his own posse around him, and then there were large crowds of people because everybody wanted to touch him. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to be healed by him. And so this massive pack of people are moving down the road, and this, this woman is working her way, fighting her way, probably clawing her way through the crowd just so that she can get there and grab the edge of his cloak. And when she does what has happens, she's healed immediately. Not because anything miraculous or sudden happens, but she knows inside of her body that she's healed, and she's healed immediately. And the kicker of the whole conversation, the kicker of the whole moment is that Jesus perceives that power has gone out of him. And this interruption happened without, Jesus was going this way, and the interruption happened behind him. But yet even in that, he had the wherewithal to stop and turn, and he says, who touched me? Now, I like movies, and in most movies, the camera is kind of an invisible bystander, right? The camera's in the scene, but you don't know the camera's there. But some of my favorite parts of movies are when the actors stop, and they stare at the screen, and they speak to the audience. This is one of those moments, because I think, as Jesus says, who touched me? My guess is Peter, because he would say this, looked at the camera and said, okay, Captain Obvious. Obviously, everybody's touching you. There's a throng of people around you. There are hundreds of people grabbing you. What a silly question. I think there probably was a little bit of sarcastic laughter laughter as well. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, there was one who touched me and was healed. And at that moment, the woman comes and falls down, trembling and says, I did it. I was the one that touched you. I knew if I just touched you, your cloak, I would be healed. I knew that you were the source of life and healing. I just wanted to be somewhere near you, and I touched you. And Jesus calls her a daughter. It's interesting that she had been bleeding for 12 years, and the daughter he was going to heal was 12 years old. She had been bleeding the entire life of the other child. And Jesus heals her like this with a touch. Your daughter, your faith has made you well. Be healed of your disease. The debilitated woman becomes a disease-free daughter, all because Jesus was willing to take interruptions and respond appropriately to them, ways that a righteous person would, addressing the situation, dealing with it, and providing healing, which God does in amazing ways through his mercy. There's a couple of observations that I think are interesting. You know, as I'm reading, as I'm thinking through larger texts, I just kind of make observations about different things that I think are kind of curious. I think it's curious to me that the demons identified what the disciples could not. Chapter 4 ends with the disciples asking a question, who is this? Who is this one who calms the sea? If they would have just read the Psalms, they would have known because God is very clearly described as the one who calms the winds and calms the storms. But they have this question, almost like a a baffled bewilderment slash lack of belief, lack of faith. Interesting that in this account, the disciples are referred to negatively twice. In this sense, they're questioning who Jesus is. Later, they're kind of laughing with him at the statement that that uh, somebody had touched him. Give me a second while I put my ear back on. The, di- the, the demons were able to identify what the disciples could not. Now, the disciples would later see Jesus as the Son of God. Peter himself, recorded by, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So we will come to them eventually, but they're still in this place of question. And maybe in our lives, too, we have these moments of question where we see God moving. We want to see God moving, but we're not exactly sure how to package him right, how to handle him properly. And when the disciples are standing there with a calm storm, they ask, who is this? The demons know very clearly, you are the son of the most high God. Do not torment us. Interesting observation. The second is that Jesus makes well those who cannot. The woman tried to get help from doctors, spent her life trying to get better. The last 12 years have been spent in financial and physical exhaustion. And no one else could heal her, but Jesus did. The demonized man could not be contained. He had oftentimes been bound with shackles and chains, but yet he broke free. He was unhindered in that way. But with a simple word, In that sense, actually, with permission, I allow you demons to leave, and they leave, and he's left at peace, clothed in his right mind, is the way he's described afterwards. Jesus is the one that can do what others cannot. And obviously, the storm, no one else can heal or calm a storm. The third interesting observation I see is that Jesus persisted when others would not, when you and I would not. Let's be honest. If somebody who is really sick or down and out or hurting or you can just perceive as a, they're a load on my time, if they come to you, you typically don't respond by helping. Jesus was in the habit of responding appropriately, even to people that were in serious state of need. Jesus persisted in providing care. He went forward. He followed the interruption and he went with knowing That he could bring benefit, yes, but knowing that it would take him off course from what he was gonna try, what, what was gonna do anyways. And you may say, Well, he's God, so he knew that he would be interrupted. Nonetheless, he spent his day reacting and responding to things. But the real question that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark is: what are you gonna do with Jesus? What's your posture gonna be towards him? As I mentioned before, last week we looked at how you react when God speaks to you. This week, I want to look at some examples in this these three interruptions and ask each of us to think about what position, what what posture do we have towards Christ. I'm not talking about physical posture. I'm talking about what the, what's the posture of your heart towards this one Jesus of Nazareth. I think there are some of us, and certainly some in our neighborhood and our communities, that respond to Jesus by saying, "I'm not sure." In these three interruptions, we see several people who are not sure. We see the disciples not sure, not sure because he just calmed the storm, and they're not sure how to package that. They're not sure when Jesus asks a silly question, who touched me? The mourners also are not sure. They think Jesus is a fool when he walks into the room and he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and they laugh at him. Imagine that. They saw what Jesus was doing, they heard what Jesus was saying, and they may have had an inkling of desire to respond properly, but they were just not sure how to put him in a mold. And maybe some of us here today, I think most of us would say we are Christians, but sometimes we still approach Christ as if we're not sure what to do with him. We're not sure how to handle him or respond to him. If you're in that camp this morning, I want you to just kind of think again about whether or not this is actually true is what we're reading true if it's true you've got to deal with the fact that jesus is what he is revealed to be and if jesus is in fact revealed if he really is what he's revealed to be then you and i need to do something with that we can't just leave that over there right the force is a question when you're interacting with your neighbors and they yeah they have like a a general appreciation for Jesus, but there's not a a sense of embracing. They're in this category of not sure. There's no place for us to be not sure about Christ. We have to choose one or the other. And I compel you, persuade you, I beg you, consider Jesus as he's revealed here. He is the one that calms storms, He is the one that has authority over demons. He is the one who can declare well. He's the one that can raise the dead. And if he can do all of those things, and you believe that's actually be true, then you and I need to follow him. Not with a sense of confusion or not being sure, but rather with a great deal of clarity. The disciples and the mourners are an example for me here of those that are not sure. There's also some that don't feel safe with Jesus. Now, safe is an interesting thing. We want to be safe in our day. Fear is what we're obsessed about right now. And there are some in the story that they look at Jesus and they do not feel safety, namely the, the demons. The demons saw Jesus immediately from afar, and they recognized him as one who could torment them, could, and they wanted to get away from him as much as possible. The citizens from the areas that owned the herds that came to find Jesus, they responded the same way. It wasn't, this is a guy we want near to us, this is a man we want far from us. And there may be some of you here this morning that have that posture towards Christ. That even though you would maybe claim yourself to be a Christian, in the end, you don't want to get close to him because you don't don't really know what he's going to do to you. And usually we have that posture towards Christ because there's something in us that wants to hide. Remember when Adam and Eve were, it was, their eyes were open to the reality of their sin. What did they do? They didn't run to God. What did they do? They ran and hid themselves because they knew they were naked. They were ashamed of their own selves. And I think that's what happens with those in this category. They see God as a not safe God because they realize somewhere inside them that they're just not right and they can't be protected in front of awesomeness. And I think in those situations, we need to think through what is it in our hearts that causes us not to approach God boldly? Now, we shouldn't be presumptuous. But what is it in our hearts that causes us to run from the Lord rather than run to the Lord? And those in this not safe posture are those that that see God as uh, something to be afraid of in a very real and tangible way, and they want to back off to something that's more comfortable. God has a lot of demands for us. Because the standard is perfection. The standard is perfection. But God is a God of great mercy and great patience and great love and great steadfastness. And he's working in us to make us more like himself. There are those that are not sure. There are those in this story that are not safe. But there are also those who are not ashamed. I love the demoniac particularly. We don't know his story The only introduction we have to this guy is that everybody tried to control him, but nobody could. And he lived among the tombs, and he cut himself, and he ran around naked, and he caused a problem all over over that region, so much so that nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. But when he was healed, he recognized it was the mercy of God, and he immediately began to tell. It's, It's so interesting to me that Jesus did not allow him to come. You know, of course... God, Jesus, do you know who I am? I was the crazy man. And now I am a perfect witness for you. What a great opportunity for you to seize more of the market. Take me with you. Let me speak. And Jesus says, no. You go back to your people. Tell your friends and those in the region about the mercy of the Lord. Our testimony ought to be, uh, it's a natural outflowing of what we've seen God do in our lives. This demoniac is a great example of that. If you've forgotten what God has done for you, spend some time, it's more important than anything else you're doing today, spend some time reflecting on the goodness of God in your life, the way that God has, revealed, has, has given you mercy, shown you mercy, shown you grace, shown forgiveness, and allow that to motivate conversation about him. The demoniac was not ashamed. I think Jairus had a lot to lose by pursuing Jesus. Because the religious leaders had already been in conflict with Jesus over the Sabbath. So for Jairus to see Jesus as a help and not an enemy and to step out of the ranks of the other religious leaders and bow down and ask Jesus for help probably was a risk. But he was not ashamed. Why? Because he knew Jesus to be a source of healing and life and wholeness and wellness. He knew that the only hope that his daughter had was in the hands of this man. And he was willing without shame to step forward and to beg for help. The woman was not ashamed either. She worked her way through the crowd in order to get there. My trust and my hope and my prayer is for us that we become people, if we are not already, people who are not ashamed. I'm not telling you that you need to be obnoxious, but you need to not be ashamed to talk about this Jesus who has saved your life. We need to be people who stand up and live out the Christian faith. Talking as if Jesus is a normal part of our life. Is Jesus a normal part of your life? Or is Jesus just a Sunday part of your life? Is Jesus just a quiet time part of your life? Is Jesus just a I'm praying before my meal type part of your life? No, Jesus should be an everything part of your life. Why? Because he is everything. Jesus is everything. And we ought to live not ashamed. Are you not sure? Are you not safe? Are you not ashamed? Should ask those questions. Chew on them this morning. As Bill mentioned earlier, this front will be open for prayer for anybody and everybody who wants to come. And I ask you just to take the time to do it now. Make those things right now. This morning service, this time that we come together, I see this as my recalibration time. It's the one time of the week where everything can come back into focus. And maybe you need to bring something back into focus right now. Let's pray together. Father, we appreciate your patience with us. Many, if not most of us, believe in your son. We believe who he is. We believe what he's done. We believe in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We believe that he's with you in glory, interceding for us. We believe that he's coming again. But God, sometimes we live as if that's not true. Sometimes we compartmentalize that faith into comfortable little packages throughout our day. And God, I pray that you would break those compartments down in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would be people who live unashamed of the reality that we are in you. I pray, Father, for those this morning who are not sure about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done whether they're a Christian now or they're not yet a Christian, I pray, Father, that you would break their hearts, that you would open their eyes, that you would help them to see that this Jesus is the Son of God. And if the Son of God, he needs to be responded to appropriately. For those, Father, who are not safe with you, I pray that they would be able to see into their own hearts the whatever that is that's keeping them at distance. I pray that you would remove those obstacles and bring them humbly back to you even today and father for those who are walking faithfully without fear i pray that you continue to give strength that you continue to give a voice that you continue to give a a clear vision as to how to go through their day responding to interruptions well but declaring your glory and declaring your mercy as often as possible i pray father that we would be people that are heralding the mercy of the lord And I pray that we would see much fruit from that. And we pray that in the name of your precious son's name, the name of Jesus, the son of the most high God. Amen.